Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to episode 109 of Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. Before I get to this week's topic, uh, as you know, the Compliance Podcast Network is always on the lookout for new podcasts. Have you ever wanted to start a podcast but didn't know how? Well, if you've thought about it, please take a listen to this week's sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In today's episode, we take a look at perhaps the greatest non-call in a NFC Championship game, the infamous failure to call pass interference on the Los Angeles Rams, which allowed them to beat the New Orleans Saints and make it to the Super Bowl, which will be played this weekend. It's based upon a blog post put up by Matt entitled of Blown Calls on Internal Control, where he takes a look at it from the internal control perspective. I take a look at it from the risk, risk forecasting, and risk management perspective, and we end with a few thoughts on the chief compliance officer position at the NFL. This one was a lot of fun. We go into the weeds, and I know you will enjoy it. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, uh, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we hope to have a ton of fun uh, in talking about the NFL's latest FUBAR uh, and uh, around uh, wrapped around a blog post that Matt wrote entitled, Of Blown Calls and Internal Control. So, Matt, with that, uh, welcome. Hello, Tom. Glad to be here with this uh, great subject today. So uh, you were really, uh, you were able to use, and uh, let me just set the stage a little bit, the approximately uh, one minute and 48 seconds left in the NFC Championship game. Uh, New Orleans receiver Tommy Lewis was uh, running a route, and quarterback Drew Brees threw a pass to him. And he was leveled by Rams defensive back Nikel Roby Coleman uh, with a not only uh, hit that was early, meaning pass interference, but also a helmet-to-helmet hit and knocked out of bounds. In spite of the fact that there was one official apparently uh, eight yards away looking directly at a play, at the play, another official about 12 yards away looking at the play, there was no flag on the call. Um, as everyone knows, uh, the Rams. Uh, went on to uh, win this game in overtime. So we have a uh, play and non-call of a penalty that, uh, at least in my humble opinion, was a game changer. As to whether or not this was an illegal play, we don't have to actually debate that because Mr. Roby Coleman admitted that uh, he pass interfered with the receiver. So with that, Matt used that as an exploration or at least a starting point, perhaps, for an exploration around internal controls. So, Matt, you want to take it from there? Yeah. So um, in full disclosure, as sympathetic as I am to the Saints fans, um, and I am because they really they got a, a raw deal from what happened with their game, um, I actually 
really enjoyed how this happened from an internal controls perspective. This is almost a textbook case of an internal control failure because something was supposed to happen, which did not. There was no call when there should have been. Um, and you can break this down into a really good analysis of a lot of the terminology that audit and internal control executives throw around. And for ethics and compliance officers, many of whom might have come up on the legal side and went to law school, you might not necessarily be fully conversant in what all of these terms mean, although you might hear them a lot if you're talking with your auditor on a regular basis. Um, but it's a fascinating glimpse into the risk analysis that has to go into, we have a risk. Do we want to control? How much of a control do we want? Why do we want it? You know, is this important? Who is this actually important for? All those abstract questions are buried in this very gripping sports tale and human drama. So I just thought it was a great, great example. So, um, you did have some uh, really interesting terms you used throughout this. Obviously, we have a materials adverse outcome, a game-changing non-call, but also we have an inherent risk. And an inherent risk in this situation is the uh, risk that a defensive back will intentionally or unintentionally engage in pass interference as defined under the rules. But if we have an inherent risk, do we have a risk mitigation uh, strategy that existed and if so, did that risk mitigation strategy in the form of, of a control fail? Yeah. So uh, there's all sorts of terminology there, and I'll, I'll walk everybody through it. You, you touched on a few of the first terms. So there is this inherent risk that a defensive player might do pass interference against a receiver. That is the risk that that will happen if there are no controls in place at all. And it gets to the question of how many controls do you want? And there are many times and many risks where you will say, I don't want any. I'm happy with the inherent risk. There is an inherent risk. A comet will strike the Earth maybe tomorrow or aliens will land on New York next week. Probably a very small one. So I don't think we need to mobilize a risk mitigation plan. But that's the inherent risk. So then you start thinking, well, we want to put in controls, and that gets to the other key term people need to think about is what is the residual risk that we are willing to live with after we put in the controls? Um, so, for example, there are rules of the game that say pass interference is improper and that there is a penalty if you do it. That's one control. Uh, it doesn't necessarily work. So there are referees to enforce the rules and to watch. So they are monitoring. That's another control. Uh, and then there's even the training that uh, football players get on the field, off the field, that they've had since they were playing Pop Warner when they were seven about good sportsmanship. All of those things are controls. There are different types of controls. The training would be more of a control environment sort of mechanism. Um, but specific referees, like they are a control activity. And that is another term that auditors will throw around a lot. There is a control activity. It does something. It is there to take an action to prevent some adverse action from happening. Um, so in this case, the control activity was to have a ref or two on the sidelines uh, to make sure pass interference was not going to happen. And that brings us to the crucial question that auditors think about a lot is, 
what happens if your control doesn't work? Because in this case, the referees did not do their job. And they have obliquely, but not publicly, I don't think. But the NFL has discreetly let New Orleans know, like, yeah, we screwed that one up. There's no excuse for it. Um, So this was a control failure all the way through. And now you get to what do you do if the control fails? And why did it fail? And, you know, let's think about are we designing the control or not? We can get into all of that in a minute or two if we want. But that's really the some of the key terms here. Inherent risk, residual risk, the control activity that exists between those two things. That's what auditors think about all the time. And we could give many anti-corruption or anti-money laundering or cybersecurity examples if we wanted. But that's what's going on here. So is one question whether or not uh, you've identified that uh, we could have a control failure, and we did have a control failure, which led to uh, a uh, material uh, adverse outcome. Mm -hmm. Is one of the questions whether or not we even want to have a compensating control? Um, It could be, yes. So you just brought up another term here, and let's start to think about it now. So here's the NFL wondering what should it do to prevent future mistakes like this? Because as we just saw with the NFC game, this was a material adverse outcome. And if you have a material weakness, say, in your accounting controls, there's hell to pay, man. The CFO is going to flip out. Um, In many times, if there's a material risk, like you can't have that. So one question the NFL has to ask itself is, really, how often does pass interference lead to a material adverse outcome like blowing your chance for the Super Bowl? And this gets to how the sport is played, and it gets back to the question about compensating controls. Like Pass interference happens in football all the time. It doesn't happen... Is with as much fanfare and importance as we just saw with the NFC Championship game. That's extremely rare, but it happens in every game, every weekend, every year. So if the control of the referee is insufficient in some way, then you can introduce a compensating control. Um, and in this case, that would be perhaps an instant replay review. And we do have those instant replay reviews for other control failures, like if somebody's about to catch the ball, but he's got one foot right in the corner. Is it in the end zone or not? You, nobody is quite sure. So uh, they go to the tape, and then you look at it from nine different angles. You make a ruling. You know that that's what replay is for. So this is the question the NFL is faced with today: the internal control question. Do we want to introduce? the compensating control of instant replay for pass interference, which generally is a minor risk. Clearly, they're okay with a lot of residual risk that the referee might miss the call because they don't have instant replay for it yet. But now suddenly this has led to a big material adverse outcome. Everybody's in an uproar. So now they're revisiting. Was that control of only a referee? can make the call on pass interference on the field. Was that control designed properly for the residual risk that happens? And this is the debate. Many people would say yes, because if you subject every pass interference call to instant replay review, the game's going to take nine hours. And if you're the NFL, is that really in the best interests of your business? And I would probably say no, because the games are too long as they are. 
Um, so I don't want to say I'm sympathetic to Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, who I think is a very unsympathetic punk twerp of an executive. I, I do not like him one bit, but I can appreciate the position he's in. Do you want to layer on yet another control activity, instant replay, to compensate for the weak activity of a ref, and then you slow down the game even more? Compliance officers, how often has somebody said, we've got so many checks and approvals and everything else that it slows me down and you're the department of no? That's what this is. That is the debate that is going to happen in the offseason here for something that probably is not going to change the outcome of a Super Bowl game almost all the time. Most times, pass interference is a pain in the neck. It shouldn't happen, but it happens often enough that if you introduce a compensating control, the whole business process slows down, and then your stakeholders start to get exasperated. And compliance officers can see that in anti-corruption procedures all the time. Same issue in the NFL. The um, evaluation of the control in terms of games during the season, I would certainly agree, has a much lower chance of having a material adverse uh, outcome as to whether or not a team reaches the Super Bowl. But does the risk uh, evaluation change in an NFC playoff game where literally such a call could um, have such an outcome? Does it change an NFC playoff or AFC playoff game in the last two minutes? Is the risk heightened so that an appropriate compensating control or a compensating control might be appropriate because of the heightened risks of four teams eliminating down to two to go to the Super Bowl? You know, that's actually an excellent way to frame it uh, in terms of risk, because as any FCPA person will know, there are high-risk activities and high-risk jurisdictions, and there are not. And so do you need some compensating controls to do business in China that you don't in, say, Sweden? Uh, yes. You know, certainly you could make that argument that some places are different than others in the FCPA world. Very similar conceptually to making the argument that there are some games that are more important and higher risk than others. Um not that I would ever say that NFL games are corrupt, but if you were ever going to throw a game or fix a game in a big way, you know, throwing a Super Bowl or an NFC, AFC championship game would be a very high risk thing. You know, is there a higher risk of um, adverse consequences all around? So that's a very valid point. Um, you know, it's something that the NFL would have to think about if they are going to address this on the offseason. And I have no idea if they will or they won't. Um, and from the NFL owner's perspective, first off, Tom, you're acting like they care about anybody other than themselves. Now, that's a big assumption. I'm not sure I'm willing to make it, but I do see where you're going with your question, and I think it's a very good one. Well, let me take it a couple of steps further then, which is who are the stakeholders in the outcome of an NFL game? Certainly the teams that play. Uh, and I, I would grant that the league is a stakeholder in having a process that delivers a result not based upon corruption. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think there are other stakeholders, certainly the fans of the teams involved. But I even see economic stakeholders because the loss of income to the individual players and coaches – who do not go to the Super Bowl, which certainly seemed to me to make them a stakeholder, and even uh, the economic benefit to the city of New Orleans, uh, where I'm sure as much as they party down there, uh, they'd be partying even more. 
so that uh, there would be a loss of uh, income uh, even on Super Bowl Sunday for people watching the Super Bowl uh, in New Orleans. Um, and if we can kind of move those to include additional stakeholders, uh, can we increase uh, the pot of stakeholders so that there is actually somebody who cares? Uh, that is, I, I think that's another very good question. Um, in the spirit of what you're trying to get at, are there other stakeholders? Yes, sure, there are. There are the fans. There are local businesses. Um, there are many others. Uh, you know, to your point about uh, New Orleans bars uh, losing business, you should know that there are several bars in New Orleans now that on Super Bowl Sunday will have a Super Bowl party replaying the last Super Bowl the Saints were in. Not this one. They will not televise that. They're under protest. Neither here nor there. I just thought that was funny. But um, if you were Roger Goodell, the commissioner, the essentially the CEO of the NFL, um, you know, he has to think first and foremost, who are the ones who sign his paycheck? The fans do not sign his paycheck. The NFL owners sign his paycheck. So his stakeholders are the NFL owners. Um you know, in theory, who do the owners answer to? Well, if no fans go to their games or they boycott their advertising sponsors and so forth, you can make that argument. But uh, if you went back to, say, a public company facing some sort of FCPA action or any thinking about any big issue, do we want to relocate a plant from Indiana to some, I don't know, some Chinese manufacturing center, something like that? We're going to leave 2,000 people jobless in Indiana. Are those Indiana communities stakeholders? Yes. But who is the organization accountable to for stakeholders? The shareholders. It's not responsible to anybody else. Um, so therefore, if it's in the shareholders' best interest to move that plant overseas, they're going to move it overseas. Likewise, with the NFL here, could the NFL really just give the shaft to New Orleans Saints fans and to fans generally? Roger Goodell could because they don't sign his paycheck. The owners sign his paycheck. And that's what the owners are going to have to think about. You know, if they, do they really want games that take longer, even if they're playoff games, even if they're crucial? You know, there's all sorts of ways to split the, uh, the, the cake here. Uh, your point is a very good one, that there are multiple groups that are stakeholders, but that doesn't mean that all of them have any power. Only a certain number do. So if an organization makes the conscious decision not to get it right, not to deliver a product based upon a process that is not only fair, clear, accurate, and correct, does that uh, business uh, run the risk of uh, negative implications uh, in the long run? I mean, theoretically, yes. But if that were the case at all times, Explain to me how you know, Microsoft Windows became the most dominant software platform in the world because it wasn't a good product for 25 years. And there are plenty of people who would say it's not good now. Um, but Microsoft made the decision that it was just going to put out buggy Windows from time to time. And um, it still became one of the most prof profitable companies in the 1990s. Uh, I can remember, if anybody in New England, if you're listening, uh, you might remember Fleet Bank from the 90s, 1990s and 2000s. Uh, it now is part of Bank of America. But once upon a time, Fleet was the dominant bank in New England, notorious for terrible customer service. And the CEO said, I really don't care about customer service so long as we're getting enough fees to make the bank as profitable as possible. And 
Fleet did very well for many years before it ultimately sold itself off. Um, so I see where you're going about long-term implications, but there are many examples where it's a long, long, long time before those implications come home to roost. Some people can, businesses can do quite well thumbing their nose at some stakeholders. So Matt, we've got a few minutes left, so let's turn to the other fun fact for today, which is that the NFL is looking for a chief compliance officer. Yes. Um, I seriously wonder why any of these idiots would want to have a compliance officer, because that would mean they would have to do something in compliance. But I suppose we can separate this from any kind of ethical component. Um, but if if not, I'm certainly aware of one very viable candidate who just recently resigned as the interim president of Michigan State University. How on earth could someone actually do compliance in an organization um, such as the NFL? You know, I don't know. And first off, we should be clear that the job is a director of compliance, not a chief compliance officer. And that's the title, director of compliance. So my first question is, how much authority and accountability does this, or, or independence, how much uh, clout would this person actually have? Um, I know that they are, I believe, parallel with, say, the director of security for the NFL. I am curious about the relationship between a director of compliance at the league and any f team that might have, say, a chief compliance officer in the team. And there are some teams, for example, in the NBA, the Dallas Mavericks, they have a chief ethics and compliance officer now because they needed it, because they had some really bad scandals with executive misconduct. Um, I think you have seen plenty of cases of off-field misconduct by players that require a, uh, a, attendance, uh, a lot of attention to corporate compliance. I don't know about what other sort of uh, compliance issues may or may not be happening in the league. Um, it's sticky. Uh, as to your point that uh, John Engler is currently unemployed after managing to disgrace himself at MSU, which is pretty hard because MSU was already disgraced before he showed up and he made the whole thing worse. I didn't think that was possible. Um, if he's looking for work, I, you know, there's plenty of boneheaded decisions happening in the uh, NFL. That's for sure. So, you might fit right in. Well, Matt, this has been a fascinating exploration of a really interesting issue. That was a great blog post you put out. Uh, obviously, I've been thinking about this uh, quite a bit, too. And uh, uh, perhaps we could end with uh, some predictions for Sunday. Well, uh, I have been a Patriots fan my whole life. I think I've disclosed that on this podcast before, including when I was a kid in the 80s and 90s when they stunk. So I am not a fair weather late to the, the bandwagon fan. Uh, I have given up trying to think that Tom Brady is too old or he needs to retire or anything like that. I said that for a period of years, and then he continued to win more Super Bowls. So I'm just going to assume Brady knows what he's doing, and I think that he will probably lead the team to victory again. And I am a fellow U of M graduate, as is uh, brother Tom Brady. So I am going to not only pull for the Patriots, but also predict uh, that the Patriots will win because, frankly, until somebody beats Bill Belichick and Tom Brady on a regular basis, uh, I think the smart money should be on them. So I'm predicting a Patriots victory as well. I would agree. All right, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance in the Weeds. 
you're interested in letting us know your Super Bowl prediction, please email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com or email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com and we'll keep a running tally. We'll certainly report on the results in our podcast next week. And I hope you'll join us as Matt and I once again take a deep dive into a compliance or compliance-related topic. If you would like to start a podcast, please think about joining the Compliance Podcast Network. It's the largest social media presence in compliance. This is Tom Fox. The Compliance Into the Weed podcast is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.